I'm going to go out on a limb. I think we would all agree. The Apostle Paul was a man of great accomplishment. Would you agree with me with that? I mean, of all the things you would say about Paul, he was successful. God used him in amazing ways. He had this fundamental drive. He was driven. You could also say that Paul was ambitious. Almost immediately following a life-changing encounter with Jesus. While he's on the road to Damascus to persecute the church, in that moment, something changed in him that created a desire and ambition to impact this world for the kingdom of God. From that moment forward, Paul's life was never about himself. He cared not of his own desires or his own wishes or his own wants. He cared solely about serving his king, Jesus. Paul, I would say that he wanted his life to matter. Impressed with the gravity of what Jesus had done. I mean, not just the reality that being knocked off the donkey, that God, that Jesus didn't kill him right then and there. Truthfully, that's what he would have deserved, right? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? (laughs) That typically is followed by a butt kicking, you know what I mean? And yet, not only did God not judge him or destroy him, Jesus didn't slay him right then and there but that God would have a plan for him, that God would want to use him. It it stuck with Paul, the gravity stuck with Paul so much that he wanted his life to matter, to make a difference. And to his credit, the apostle Paul was successful. Now this morning, I, I want to start with a question. Because what was it about Paul that helped him translate the desire for his life to matter to the reality that it did? What helped him translate desire into accomplishment? And that should be helpful for us and important for us because many of us as well want our lives to matter. We want our lives to impact the kingdom. We want our lives to rattle the gates of hell and produce victory in heaven. We understand that we have this desire. So how then can, when it's all said and done, that desire translate into accomplishment when we're finally hearing well done, good and faithful servant? Now, to to uncover the answer to this as it's presented to us in Acts chapter 20, it's important that we begin actually by flipping a few verses behind to Acts chapter 19, verses 21 and 22 for a bit of context. We're told by Luke, our author, that when these things were accomplished, the season of ministry there in Ephesus, that Paul purposed in the spirit that when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, he said, after I've been there, I, I, I also want to see Rome. So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus. He stayed in Asia, that being Ephesus, for a time Chapter 20, verse 1, now after the uproar had ceased. So between uh, these two sections of scripture, Demetrius, the silversmiths, those who were making a living on the worship of Diana, rioted. 
There was a great commotion and unrest in Ephesus. You can read the previous verses or refer back to last week's Bible study for more details. But after all of that had ceased, Paul called the disciples of Ephesus to himself. He embraced them and departed to go to Macedonia. And so in this moment, Paul is now making good on what it was his plan was all along. This riot being a bit of a detour as he's wrapping up, closing his affairs there in Ephesus. Now, the first point I wanna make, when it comes to the idea of a desire translating into accomplishment, if you want that to be the case, desire to please God, to make an impact to the kingdom, and then accomplishing that, the first thing we see from Paul, a man of accomplishment, is that he was faithful to finish the task before him. Luke mentions that Paul only sensed a move to leave Ephesus when what? When the things that were in front of him were accomplished. It's what set everything into emotion. Accomplishing what he wanted to do in Ephesus then yielded a desire that maybe it was time to move on. Paul. Paul was a very strategic man. As George Bush would say, he was a man of strategy. He was a man that had a plan. And in Ephesus, he knew that a successful, influential city, a church being planted there, would then impact the greater region. Paul spent three years establishing this church because he knew that church would start reproducing itself would start having more of a regional outreach, a regional goal. If you flip to the book of Revelation, don't flip now, but, but you'll find Jesus writes seven letters to the churches of Asia Minor. The first letter's written to Ephesus, but then all of the other letters to smaller towns, sort of speak, were suburbs of Ephesus. So Paul knew that if a work can start in Ephesus, it will naturally start to spread its tentacles out and impact the region. I don't even have to travel to Laodicea and Sardis and Philadelphia, all these other cities. I can just focus on Ephesus. And then Ephesus will influence the greater region. So here's Paul, influenced by the Holy Spirit, no doubt, setting goals that he wanted to accomplish in Ephesus, benchmarks that needed to be reached before he would leave, Sensing now that those benchmarks had been met, that his goals had been satisfied, these things being accomplished, now he senses the stirring that maybe it's time to move on. I mean, Paul's mission was large, wasn't it? I mean, the, the desire to take the gospel into uncharted territories, places that had never heard of Jesus, that was a lofty ambition. And yet, the key for his success was that while dreaming big, Paul always kept his focus in the moment on being faithful to fulfill one task at a time, the task that God set before him. Understand this concept of translating desire into accomplishment. It does include having a vision, but it also includes being faithful with each and every step along the way, whether it be in your career, your ministry, spiritual life even. I'd like to ask that, are there things that God wants you to accomplish in your current situation before you look to new opportunities? 
are there things that God has impressed on your heart that for this season, this is what needs to be accomplished, and when that's accomplished, now I can start looking to another horizon. It starts, yes, having a vision, but beginning with the moment. Never forget a race, which is what we're all in. It's not one all at once, is it? That would be pretty awesome. The pistol fires. You take one step, like, ta-da! Give me a medal. I'm done. No, success requires that you faithfully reach each checkpoint before embarking on the next leg of your journey. And only you can determine those things with the Holy Spirit. The second point I'd like to make in this concept of desire and accomplishment is that Paul, he looked to the Holy Spirit to set his destination. While there were things that Paul felt called to accomplish in Ephesus, once these things were accomplished, notice, Paul purposed in the Spirit that when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, and had gone up to Jerusalem, that he would also visit Rome. Before leaving Ephesus, the Holy Spirit had impressed on Paul's heart a series of short-term, medium-range, and long-term goals. He would begin, upon leaving Ephesus, by doing what? He would revisit churches he had already planted. Churches in Macedonia, that would be Philippi, Berea, Thessalonica. He would also revisit Achaia, that being Corinth. And then once he had accomplished those things, he would catch a boat, sail to Jerusalem, the medium-range goal, before, after accomplishing that, making his way to Rome, his long-term plan. Now understand, this word purposed, he purposed, is the Greek word tithemi. It's actually a word that we, that we get our word tithe from. The idea of the word itself communicates a setting aside or an establishing. When we talk about a tithe when it comes to our resources, it is the first fruits. It's a percentage of our income that we don't even see as ours. It's the Lord's, it's his, thus I'm setting it aside, I've purposed it to be here. It's not mine, I don't get a say, it's the Lord's. I've purposed it for him. We can tithe, in a sense, or purpose our time, our energies, our efforts. In this instance, we see Paul purposing his plans. The phrase that he purposed in the Spirit indicates that his plans formed because they were ordained by the Spirit. It's not as though Paul made plans and said, the Holy Spirit's totally on board. No, he allowed the Holy Spirit to make the plans. The Holy Spirit purposed the plans. His short-term, medium-range, and long-term goals, he had given to the Spirit. You lead me, you guide me, and I'll follow. Has the Spirit given you a destination to work towards? Has he given you a vision, a mission for your life? We see it over and over and over again in the life of Paul that it was in allowing the Lord to impress a future destination that always enabled him to keep progressing forward. You know, it's sad, but many of us wander through life mainly because we haven't allowed the Lord to set a destination. A destination is pivotal. 
It's true that you will go nowhere until you have somewhere to go. For many of us, we're sitting in our car. The engine is cranked, but it's an idol. We don't know where to go, where the Lord's leading us, what he has for us, and thus we're paralyzed. You need to have a destination. If you don't, you'll go nowhere. Finally, notice that Paul, he relied on God to then ordain his steps. Verse 2, we're told that when he had gone over that region, when he encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and he stayed for three months. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Now, now, now let me give you the motion of the text here. His plan, even before the riot, was to revisit churches. He said goodbye to his brothers. He departs. He rendezvous with Timothy and Erastus in Macedonia, that being Philippi. From there, the three of them worked their way south, going over the region, hitting Berea and Thessalonica, coming down ultimately to Corinth. All the while, he's encouraging them, the churches, with many words. He's teaching them. He's imparting wisdom. Now, he's in Corinth. And his plan, even before leaving Ephesus, was that upon arriving in Corinth, he would do what? He would sail from there to Jerusalem. But something interesting occurs in our text, right? As he was about to sail to Syria, Paul, becoming aware of an assassination attempt, a plot, decides to return back through Macedonia instead. What does he do? He deviates from his plan, doesn't he? Now, you're going to see something over the next several chapters of the book of Acts that, that's in, an interesting, maybe on the surface, dichotomy with Paul, but I think it's all consistent. Paul, when it came to the destination, Jerusalem, we're going to see over and over and over again, he was stubborn. He refused to deviate from that plan. Paul had his eyes set on Jerusalem, and he had friend and pal and church over and over and over again. People along the way say, dude, you don't need to go to Jerusalem. You shouldn't go to Jerusalem. Bad things, even a prophet, bad things await you in Jerusalem. But Paul would not deviate from that final destination. And yet, in this instance, he remains flexible to change and to adapt to the situation on the ground. Paul was a courageous man. I mean, Paul never backed down from a fight. At this point in our travels through Acts, I mean, Paul's the guy that gets stoned to death, is resurrected, and walked back into the city. It's like, you're gonna finish the task. Like, I'm not afraid of you. This life is not my own. You can't take it. Like, he was courageous and fearless and tenacious. But he wasn't stupid. Like, he wasn't a fool. Paul knew that getting on that boat would have likely ended with him being tossed overboard. You might be a good swimmer, but you're in trouble in that situation. He wasn't an idiot. To this point, Scottish preacher William Arnott, he remarked that a man who has courage without prudence is apt to throw his life away. And that's the truth. Paul, he had a plan to reach the destination that God had given him. Ephesus to Macedonia, Macedonia to Corinth, Corinth to Jerusalem. He had a plan. 
but he was flexible to adapt his plan, knowing that the Lord always has a purpose in these type of deviations. Proverbs 16 verse 9 says that a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Understand, not only do you need a destination if you're to go anywhere, but isn't it true that it's really hard to turn a car that isn't moving? Like it's hard to steer a car if it's not rolling along. The faster it's moving, the easier it is to turn. Here's Paul. The Spirit had impressed on his heart a destination. But the Spirit hadn't necessarily mapped out all the particulars for him. The course, Paul had to walk by faith. He had to trust in the providence of God. He had to remain flexible to divine deviations. He gets to Corinth. He hears of an assassination plot. He's like, I'm not getting on that boat. I'll find another way. It's all good. I'm still going to my destination. But God is probably using this for a reason, for a purpose. He leaves Ephesus. He's got these plans. He's got these steps. He's going to move. But he's going to trust the Lord that if something arises, He's going to ebb and flow with it. Even the man of faith, Abraham, the father of our faith. In Genesis 12, verse 1, we're told that the Lord said to Abraham, get out of your country from your family and your father's house to a land that I will show you. The command for Abraham was to get moving. Well, where am I going? Don't worry. It's a land I'll show you. Well, what about this land? And God elaborates on how awesome it is so he knows there's a destination. He doesn't know how to get there or, or, or the, the course, but he's just asked to get moving and trust that I'll steer you along the way. You know, I've discovered that when making this journey of faith, roadblocks to my plans aren't exactly things that I'm supposed to stubbornly drive over or push through. If you're driving along and you see a roadblock, don't drive through it. The reality is it's there for a reason that whatever exists on the other side, you might doubt it, but it's not gonna end well for you. Roadblocks are not things to be stubborn with or power through or drive over. Roadblocks, I've discovered, are instead God's way of getting me to deviate maybe from my plan so that I can walk in his will. Well, we're told in verse four, that so Peter of Berea accompanied him to Asia, also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and Tychus, and Triophus, I'm doing my best, of Asia, these men, going ahead, waited for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in the five days, we joined them at Troas, where then we stayed another seven days. Our motion of the text, Paul now begins to work his way from Corinth back to Philippi. As he's doing this, he sends word to have seven men meet him in Troas. We read through the list of names, men from Berea, 
Thessalonica, Derby, Ephesus. It would seem that these men, the men listed, would accompany Paul in order to bring relief funds from their prospective churches to the church in Jerusalem, which is interesting because this seems to be a new development, right? Like, just a few days before this, Paul's getting on a boat to go to Jerusalem. This is not even in the the cards, right? And yet, upon not getting on the boat because of the assassination attempt and realizing, I gotta now go back up to Macedonia, it kind of dawns on Paul that this might yield a wonderful opportunity. So as he's working back through these churches, he's leaving word. Take up an offering. The church in Jerusalem is experiencing not just incredible persecution, but economic hardship. And it would be great for us to get some funds together to take there. I'm traveling there. That's my destination. You get together what you want. Send representatives. They can join me in Troas. We'll all go together. And these Gentile churches would then be able to present to the believers there in Jerusalem a love offering, a relief fund, a token of support. In regards to these men, David Guzik makes an interesting observation about the two from Thessalonica. Aristarchus and Secundus. Aristarchus was a typical name that was given to someone in the ruling class. He would have been, by his own name, a member of nobility. From the Greek root, we actually get our English word, aristocrat. So you have Aristarchus, but he's now traveling with Secundus. And Secundus is literally translated number two. That's his name, number two. Dos, you know, that's his name, Secundus. Now, why would his name be number two? Well, in Roman society, Slaves were often stripped of their identity and just referred to in regards to numbers. Number one, get me a Coke. Number two, the yard needs to get mowed. Like they just referred to them using numbers. So what's communicated is you have here from Thessalonica, the odd couple. You have a member of nobility the ruling class, traveling with a slave. Now, now this doesn't mean that Secundus is the slave of of this man, but, but likely as the church there in Thessalonica is determining who should be entrusted with the funds to represent them to Jerusalem, they pick out from the crowd an aristocrat and a slave to be equals to be partners, to be companions. It seems that what's being described here is really abnormal. This commingling of two different social and economic classes was taboo in Roman society, if not downright offensive. And yet, in Jesus, this had all changed. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, Paul would say, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one 
in Christ Jesus. So Paul, he sails from Philippi across the Aegean Sea. He arrives in Troas, as was the plan. Notice from our text, though, that this pronoun, we, reemerges. In addition to these seven men, Luke, our author, is now joining Paul, bringing the total of this traveling party now to nine. So they're in Troas. We're already told that they're there for a period of seven days. Verse seven, on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them, that being the church, and continued his message till midnight. Now, Paul's time in Troas is short-lived. We don't know much about it, but what's incredible is that we are given like a snapshot, a little glimpse into the inner workings of the early church, the first century church. Our whole purpose in studying the book of Acts as a young church is to look to this as our example, to establish a blueprint that we can try to emulate and model. So what do we learn from our text about the early church? First, we're told that the disciples came together on the first day of the week, that being Sunday. Now, why would they do such a thing? Well, they gathered because on Sunday, the first day of the week, something major happened. Jesus rose from the dead. Traditionally, the church always gathered following that event on Sunday to mark the resurrection of Jesus. It's interesting, culturally, we set aside one day a year to celebrate that event. We call it Easter, Resurrection Day. When the reality is what we're doing right now is a resurrection day. We are gathering simply because Jesus rose from the dead. So there's always this element. Now, meeting on Sunday was a seismic shift. The Jews, their holy day was the Sabbath. It was Saturday. And yet, because of this interesting thing that happened, Jesus rising from the dead, a shift took place in their psyche. They rejected the Sabbath and they saw Sunday as being a new Sabbath, a new covenant. Jesus resurrected. Now, you should note that in Jewish communities and Roman communities, Sunday was not a day off. It was a work day, which means that it is very likely that it would have been impossible for the church to have gathered together in the morning. Everyone would have to work. Meaning that when are, are these believers gathering? After work, in the evening, as opposed to the morning. We're told that they came together and note what they did first, to break bread. Now, this phrase, to break bread, it could very well indicate that they gathered to share a meal. It was after hours, people are getting, gotta get the kids, gotta get to church, this is how this is working, and having food available could have just been a convenient thing. However, the phrase more likely refers to believers gathering together, breaking bread in the sense that they were recognizing Jesus' work on the cross through the partaking of communion. This phrase, the breaking of bread, we find in every mention of Jesus' institution of what we know as the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. So they came together on Sunday. That's what we're doing. They broke bread. They had communion. They recognized not just his resurrection by gathering on Sunday, but his crucifixion by partaking of the elements as Jesus instructed. Do this in remembrance of me which is cool. So we got two of the three elements, right? Then the third thing, 
in this formal gathering, in addition to, though not referenced here, we know from tradition, in addition to prayer and probably the singing of songs, which was customary, the church of everything gave greatest attention to what? The teaching of the word of God. We're told that Paul spoke to them and continued his message until midnight, sensing that this might be the last opportunity he would have to share with these believers there in Troas, knowing that his plan was to depart the next day. He shares with them a message, a sermon, a teaching, that's what the word means, that lasted maybe six hours. So don't you dare complain about me because I'm not going six hours. Now, this is likely an exception and not the norm, but the question does arise from the text, something that I think is important for us to address. And you know, I'm gonna kind of get postmodern here for a moment. Like I'm gonna have, I'm gonna take a moment here in a Bible study to talk about a Bible study. So in our Bible study, I'm gonna talk about Bible studies. So just bear with me because there's a question that I think should, well, at least be asked following, well, Paul taught for six hours. So that's what we should do. And I would say, no, we shouldn't do that. And I think we would all be in agreement, but see people nodding their heads, thank you. The question does arise, right? How long should a Sunday sermon be? How long should it be? Now, in an attempt to come to a general understanding as to what the overarching thoughts are concerning the length of a sermon, for three years, Tom Rainier examined trends using anecdotal information, social media polls, to discover that roughly 41% of Christians believe that sermons should be in the 20 to 30 minute range. <laughs> they don't go here. <clears throat> 37% believe that sermons should be in the 35 to 55 minute range. 9% believe that sermons should really have no time constraints at all. That's probably with the pastors. And then there's 13% of Christians who had such a variety of responses that it didn't really fit into either of these three categories, which makes me really interested what their opinions were. No sermon at all. I don't want to listen to that guy whatsoever. Now, what's interesting about Rainier's research is that while, quote, plenty of folks may complain if a sermon is too long, it is unlikely anyone will grumble about a sermon being too short. I understand that. He concludes that if you wish your sermons could be longer, you're probably the only one. Thanks, Tom. Shane Raynor from ministrymatters.com notes that, quote, preachers who speak from 20 to 30 minutes are fairly common for two reasons. One, really good speakers will find that a 20 to 25-minute sermon leaves the audience wanting more, and secondly, not-so-good speakers will realize that they probably couldn't keep the congregation awake longer than 20 or 25 minutes anyway, so they don't dare venture into the second half-hour territory. Based on his research, he does conclude that since we're in a short attention span world, the vast majority of pastors should keep their sermons to 15 minutes or less. 
He must have a really poor pastor. David Murrow, author of the book, Why Men Hate Going to Church, he would agree with this assessment, writing, men have attention spans of six to eight minutes. Like he says, basically, men are toddlers. But he continues by saying that Protestant sermons are are more than 30 minutes in length. It has three main points and sometimes more. No wonder men can't remember what's being taught. Basically, you're toddlers who can only digest one bit of information. His conclusion is that if you really want to attract unchurched men, paint this on your sign, home of the 10-minute sermon. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not not arguing for a six-hour sermon. I would completely agree with Damien Kyle's assessment that the mind cannot retain what the seat cannot endure. That is a truth. However, I do disagree with the notion that today's shortened attention span demands that we decrease the length of a sermon. Consider the fact that people, even men, have no problems sitting through an hour-long TV show or a three-hour movie. People have no problems sitting through a comedy hour or listening to a 50-minute podcast like Radiolab. They have no problems doing this as long as the content is engaging and captivating. The problem with many sermons is not the flaw, not some flaw within the audience listening, but a flaw in the person preaching. Sadly, you can cut a 45-minute Bible study down to 15 minutes, and it'll still be lame. If the person delivering the content is boring, uninspiring, and unprepared. The problem is not the attention span of the people. It's that you stink at what you're doing as a pastor. When determining the ideal length of a sermon, at Calvary 316, we believe that there are two factors that should be considered. One Does the sermon grab the attention of the audience? Do you connect with it? Secondly, what then is the maximum length of time the attention of the audience can be maintained? That seems reasonable, right, in determining a length of a sermon. To the second point, it's been said that, quote, the maximum attention endurance of an audience can be calculated mathematically. If you average the age of the audience, multiply that number by two, you are given the maximum attention endurance of your congregation, which means that as long as you're engaging and captivating, as long as you gain everyone's attention, you can hold them for that maximum length of time. Means you can be awesome and creative and engaging and captivating, but you're not going beyond that. People can't physically, mentally, Handle it. Example, if the audience is two, three, and four-year-olds, you have a maximum attention endurance of six minutes, if you are lucky. If it's a youth class, 12 to 15-year-olds, a message should be crafted no longer than 26 minutes, the average age multiplied by two. If the congregation ranges from 16 and older, let's just say the average age being somewhere like 30, you should never teach beyond an hour. 
Understand, the key to a successful sermon, it's not about the time. It's about the content and the delivery. If a sermon grabs and holds the attention of the audience, there is no reason you shouldn't be able to teach to the maximum endurance level of your audience. In our situation, I'm on my A game. Sometimes. There's no reason that we can't roll for 40 to 50 minutes. When people are constantly complaining about the length of a sermon, which, by the way, doesn't happen here, it's often an indicator, the pastor himself, and I'm going to say this as nice as I can, but if people are complaining about the sermon, it, it, it's an indicator that the pastor maybe lacks a personality or is unenthusiastic about his craft, or maybe hasn't invested the time and energy it needed to be creative, or goes longer than his allotted time. People are like, I'm really into what you're saying, but I'm really hungry, and you told me I could go to lunch at noon. Sometimes the problem is that a pastor rambles repeats himself over and over and over. Like, listen, that was a great point four points ago. Pick up the pace. Let's get it moving. Or pastors who just tell stories that end up being unrelated to any point concerning the Bible study. We've all been in sermons like this. Furthermore, it's short-sighted and I think disingenuous when the pastor attributes the complaints of the sermon length to the sagging attention span of the audience, when instead, he should go home and look in the mirror because he's the problem, not the people. The truth is that if a pastor is unable to grab an audience's attention, 15 minutes is just as miserable as 45. The problem isn't the length, it's the pastor. John MacArthur, he remarked, as long as it takes to cover the passage adequately is how long a sermon should go. I do not think the length of the sermon is as important as its content. At times I have preached 50 minutes, it's been 10 minutes too long. Other times I've preached for an hour and 25 minutes and it's been just right. The important thing is to cover the main point so that people are convinced of its truths and comprehend its requirements. If you have nothing worthwhile to say, even 20 minutes will seem like an eternity to your people. If you are interesting, and I would like to add, speaking with a conviction, the people will stay with you. The purpose of a sermon is not to get it over, but rather to explain the word of God. My goal is not accomplished because I am brief. My goal is accomplished when I am clear and have exposited the word of God. I would say to that, amen and amen. Verse eight. There were many lamps in the upper room. So Paul is teaching the six-hour study. Many lamps in the upper room where they had gathered. And in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. And he was overcome by this sleep. And as Paul continued speaking, so he's sawing logs to the Bible study, he fell down out of the window from the third story and was taken up dead. 
mean, that's a study killing people. Literally. But Paul went down, fell on him, embraced him, and said, do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. <laughs> Understand the scene. This congregation has worked a full day, right? Like this is a working day, Sunday. They've worked a whole day. They clock out. They go to church. They gather to hear Paul speak for the final time. Beyond the fact that Paul goes on a six-hour marathon, Luke includes some interesting details. He tells us that there were many lamps in the upper room, indicating that not only would people be naturally tired because of working all day, but you have this infusion of heat and the removal of oxygen, the oil lamps burning it up. Now, to his credit, this young man, Eutychus, he didn't want to fall asleep. He was doing his best to the point that knowing the tendency, I'm tired, these oil lamps are killing me, Paul, I don't know when he's going to end. He positions himself in a window. Now, that's a smart strategy. He, he's, working, he's working it, right? He's like, I'm, I'm feeling it. The heavies, they're coming on. The gravitational pull of my eyelids, it's occurring. So I'm going to get myself near a window. He's standing up. He's leaning back. Some cool air, some H2, some oxygen. Like, he's, he's good. But despite his best efforts, you know what happens? He's just, I'm doing, I'm, I'm imitating some of you, by the way. I see it. You can't hide. It's a small room. But Eutychus just finally kind of like, I'm going to embrace this. He closes his eyes. Droop, <laughs> like right out the window. Paul might have been talking about meeting Jesus, and he took him literally. I don't know. Now, Eutychus falls out the window. And you can imagine the scene. You talk about a distraction in the middle of your Bible study. And Paul here, like he's, he's got to be sensing a little bit of responsibility for what's happened, right? I should have cut it off at five hours and 45 minutes. Eutychus would still be alive. So he's like, okay, I get it, guys. It's my fault. Eutychus falls out. Everyone's like, oh, snap. And then they turn to Paul. It's you, buddy. Your fault. You're going to kill all of us if you keep going, right? So Paul, he, he stops preaching. Time out. I got to deal with this. He goes down. We're told he, he, he fell on Eutychus. That literally means to lie upon, which is weird. And then he embraces him. So Paul runs down three stories. Eutychus is laying there. Paul's, he lays down on top of him. People got to be thinking, Paul was tired too. You know, like <laughs> he wanted a nap as well. So he, he lays on him and then he grabs him. He grabs hold of Eutychus. And what does he say? He says, do not trouble yourselves, which means stop the noise and commotion because people are wailing, people are running over. He's like, shut up. He's alive. His life is in him. Now, why would Paul 
do that. Like, especially like if you had the power to, this is not resurrection, this is revivification. He's dead. Luke's a doctor, pronounces him dead. Eutychus is revived to life, brought back to life. What makes him different from Jesus is that Eutychus died again later. Jesus was resurrected never to taste death again. It's a difference. But why would Paul do all of this? Like lay down on him, embrace him. I think that what he's doing is he's like, I'm in a tight spot. My sermon killed the poor boy. And he's looking it over and thinking, Elisha, I'm, I'm gonna do what Elisha did. If, if you actually look back at, at the, the Shunammite son who, who dies, Elisha also in a tough spot. It's like, I'm not really sure what I'm doing here. Does the exact same thing as Paul. Lays down on him, mouth to mouth, nose to nose. Like warmth comes back, like ta-da, done. So this is a miracle. I'm not gonna explain how it happened because I don't know. Other than the fact that Paul's like, this would be a great opportunity to let the people know that I also practice what I preach. The Bible says that when someone dies, this is what you do. So this is what I'm doing. And the man's raised to life. It's an awesome thing. We're told in verse 11 that when he had come up, this being Paul, which I love this, by the way. So his sermon has killed someone. He took care of it, which I guess means that if you will take care of that problem, that gives you license, right? Because he comes back up to the upper room. He has a snack. He breaks some bread. He eats. And then what does he do? He talks. I love it. Luke is like, dude talked for a long while. Even till daybreak. Like Luke's like, we were all in the back with our, with our sundials. Like, dude, you have got to pick up the pace here. Wrap it up. Look at the clock. We got to go. So he teaches till daybreak. Then he departs. They brought up the young man who was alive we're told that they were not a little comforted, which means that they were greatly comforted. So after raising Eutychus from the dead, catching his snack, after teaching for a long while, kills a man, goes right back to teaching. It's awesome. I love it. But man, you can't help but, but think that Paul's heart was heavy, wasn't it? Like Paul's heart was heavy this was the last time he'd be able to speak to these people. And he had something to, to share. He had something to say. The power of preaching, of teaching, of learning and growing. There was a halftime. Six hours, halftime, and then another six hours. Pretty exciting Super Bowl halftime show, I would say. Now, in conclusion because there's really no easy way to transition from this. But I can't help but use the opportunity to point out that sleeping in church is not preferable. It's not preferable. Like Eutychus, if, if you, your eyelid, like I'm doing all I can to keep your attention. And I'm not gonna go beyond 45, 50 minutes, I promise you. I work hard at this, to stay engaging, to stay entertaining, and I see you all. You engage. 
It's a good thing. We're all together. We're in it to win it. But if you're feeling that natural gravitational pull, like that, the tiredness, don't just sit there and succumb to it. Do something. It's why we let you drink coffee. It's like, if I can't be entertaining, we'll give you caffeine. Maybe that'll help. Like, even to the point that in our sanctuary, if, like, if, if coffee's not doing it, you can grab a bowl of cereal. This is a good Bible study. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay awake. And we also give you the bowl of cereal because if you fall asleep, we want your face to have a place to land. We do things to try to, we, we put stuff on the keynote. We have a, a, an, an app function so that you can use as many of your senses as possible to stay engaged. But here's the deal. We're doing something weighty and something important. This is the living word of God that can change your life. And I believe that Satan will try his best to distract you in any way possible. So do what you have to do to stay awake. I have a dear friend who I won't mention his name because this is being recorded that has narcolepsy. I've known him for years. He falls asleep in meetings at work. That's this guy. He can fall asleep anywhere. If he shows up late someplace, there is a likelihood he pulled off the side of the road in the 10-minute drive from his house to mine to take a quick nap. Okay, it's Brian Wilson. I'm just, just pointing that out. Which I warned him in advance. Dude, we're going to get to Eutychus, and there's no way I could. But you know what? I, I am so proud of Brian because he knows this tendency in himself. And he wants God to speak. He wants to hear God's word. So you know what he does most Sundays? You've seen it. He gets done playing electric guitar. He grabs a cup of coffee and he stands the whole service. Which is dangerous because he could still fall asleep. <laughs> but he knows that he, that he would make a commotion. I, my point, don't fall asleep in church. Do what you have to do. Don't allow yourself to be robbed. But on the flip side, do it, that if you're going to sleep, church is not a bad place to do it. I mean, seriously. I, I know some of you maybe worked all night, and you're here in faith, and this is just where you're at. And as you know, as we're getting into the Word, and as you're listening, maybe you do need to enter into the rest of the Lord. Just don't snore and sit towards the back. But beyond all of this, you know, sleeping in church, it's not the worst type of sleep that can happen in the life of a believer. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 5 and 6, Paul would write to believers, and he would issue them a stern warning. I'll read it for you. You are all sons of light, sons of the day. We are not of the night, nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. On November 15th, 1857, Charles Spurgeon taught a sermon on this passage in, in 1 Thessalonians titled, Awake, Awake. The entire transcript's built into the C316 app. You can read it on your, on your own. But I do want to share an excerpt. He says, sleep signifies inactivity. The farmer cannot plow his field in his sleep. 
nor can he cast the grain into the furrows, nor watch the clouds, nor reap the harvest. The sailor cannot reap, can, cannot reef his sail, nor direct his ship across the ocean, whilst he slumbereth. It is not possible that in the house of business, men should transact their affairs with their eyes fast closed in slumber. It would be a singular thing to see a nation of sleepers, for they would be a nation of idle men. Behold ye, how many professing Christians there are that are asleep in their senses. They are inactive. Sinners are dying in the streets by the hundreds. Men are sinking into the flames of eternal wrath, but they fold their arms. They pity the poor perishing sinner, but they do nothing to show that their pity is real. They go to their places of worship. They occupy their well-cushioned easy pew. They wish the minister to feed them every Sabbath, but there is never a child taught and the Sunday school by them. There is never a tract distributed at the poor man's house. There is never a deed done which might by the means of saving souls. Oh, what a vast amount of sleeping we have in our churches. For truly, if our churches were once awake, as far as material is concerned, there is enough converted men and women. There is enough talent with them, enough money with them, enough time with them, God granting the abundance of his Holy Spirit, which he would sure to do if we were all zealous to preach the gospel in every corner of the earth. The church does not need to stop for want of instruments or for want of agencies. We are everything now except the will. We have all that we may except to give for the conversion of the world, except just a heart for the work and the spirit of God poured into our midst, he concludes, oh, sleep not, soldiers of the cross. To sleep in wartime is utterly inconsistent. Great spirit of God, forbid that we should slumber. Awake, awake, O Holy Spirit arises all and keep us awake. And I think to that point, it could not be said any better. So if you'd join me, Father.